1999, um, I went on my very first mission trip. I was a sophomore in college, and I went with a group of friends. We were going down to Honduras. There had been this uh, horrific hurricane that had come through Honduras and it just, just wrecked people's houses. And so I was going down there for a week with a group of students, some of my good friends, and we were going to go, we were going to work on rebuilding some of these houses. And so we were working on the kind of the north side of Honduras in a little place called Trujillo. And uh, we were in kind of a rural area rebuilding some devastated houses. And I remember the beginning of the week, the leader of the trip came to us and he said, hey, uh, the people that you're building this house for, uh, they want to meet you at some point. And so at some point, one of these days this week, I'm going to pick you up a little early. I'm going to take you to their house. And, and honestly, I'll just be really honest, like I was terrified of that. I didn't speak any Spanish. I was afraid they wouldn't be able to speak any English. And I was just afraid it was going to be awkward. And I was like, no, I'm, you know, let's just work on this house. And so me and my friends, we were just so focused on, we learned how to mix concrete with shovels and how to lay cinder blocks and how to do all this stuff. And we just got so focused on the project that at the end of each day, the leader of the trip would show up and say, hey, are you guys going to come? Oh, no, 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 we got a little bit more work to do. And we just kept putting it off, putting it off until the last day of the week. He showed up and he said, listen, there's no excuses. This family wants to meet you. Just stop where you are. Get into the pickup truck. I'm going to take you to their, where they're living right now. And so we pile into the back of this pickup truck. We go kind of cruising across the Honduran countryside. And we pull into what the only way I know to describe it, it looked like a refugee camp. I mean, just this huge kind of like area of land with all these temporary shelters built kind of between two mountains. And it's where all these people that have been displaced out of their homes by the hurricane were living. And he pulls up into one of these and he says, okay, this is the place. We jump out of the truck and we walk into what was probably a 10 by 10 structure. And there's this husband and this wife and this child, and they've got a table set and the chairs pulled out and they didn't speak any English and I didn't speak any Spanish, but with the smiles on their faces, they welcomed me into their home and I sat down to eat this little meal and it was like in this moment where God like grabbed my face and he said, Aaron, you've been so focused on the project that you've completely missed the people for whom I brought you here. And I was like, wow, God. And I felt so, I was like, oh, thank you for showing me this. It was like this moment where I looked back over the rest of the week that I had been so focused on doing something that I forgot who I was there to do it for. And I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you get so focused on a task at hand that you forget the people for whom you're actually doing the task. And you know, as we continue on in our story through Nehemiah this morning, I, what we're going to notice is we're going to see this shift take place, this shift from the project to the people you know, all the way through Nehemiah, you remember when we started, we saw Nehemiah at the beginning of very chapter one, that Nehemiah was awakened to this need, that the wall of the city of his ancestors was in disrepair, and God awakened him to that need. And then the next week, we see him kindled because he, he hits his knees, he begins praying for strength, and God moves him in action to go to Jerusalem. And then last week, we saw this place where they start building the wall, and we see this opposition come against them. You remember Dave saying that, hey, every time heaven opens the door for opportunity, hell is quick to jump in and try to bring opposition. And so if you keep reading through the story, you get to chapter 6, verse 15 of Nehemiah, and basically Nehemiah says, hey, you know, despite the opposition, we finished the wall in 52 days. It's incredible. Like, I mean, the technology that they had available, that they were able to finish building an entire wall around the city in 52 days. And if you were watching this in a movie, you would kind of be duped into thinking that the movie had reached its end because, hey, the project is finished. We did what we came to do. But as you keep reading through Nehemiah, you see that Nehemiah's eyes are being shifted. The project is finished and God is going to start to show him the people for whom he was awakened. 
So in chapter 7, you read, and Nehemiah is literally just listing out names. And if you read chapter 7, it's going to feel really boring because there's a bunch of weird names that you don't know how to pronounce. But basically what Nehemiah is saying, hey, listen, over 42,000 people were being brought back from a country of exile back to the country where they belong. And he's saying, hey, these are real people with real names and real families, real husbands, real wives, real children, real brothers, real sisters being picked up and being relocated to the city of their ancestors. And then you get to chapter 8, and the emphasis on the people is so clear. We're just going to look at the first 12 verses, and you're going to see 13 different times the phrase, the people, is going to be repeated in these 12 verses. God is saying, hey, I want to show you the people. It's about the people. It's about the people. So let's look. We're going to start in Genesis, I mean, in Nehemiah chapter 8. Um, we're actually going to pick up the tail end of chapter 7. Uh, they might be grouped together in your Bible, but um, it, we'll read the first 12 verses. It begins like this. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Skip down to verse 5. So Ezra opened the book. And all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And the Levites, and a bunch of names of Levites there, uh, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared because this day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. And then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. This is the word of the Lord out of Nehemiah chapter eight. Now this morning, we're going to take a look at these people, the people that Nehemiah keeps referring to. And I want us to see that, you know, sometimes Sometimes it takes seeing spiritual awakening in others in order for us to see it happening in ourselves. Sometimes we got to see it happening somewhere else to realize what God is wanting to do in us. And so we're going to take a close look. Who, who are these people? Who are these people that are experiencing this awakening? Well, the first thing I want us to see is, is that they are homesick. They're homesick people. Now, here's how we know this. You know, at the very beginning of chapter 8, it says, after they had settled into all of their towns. In other words, listen, all of these people were returning from a place that they had been exiled. They have been refugees in a country that is not their own. And they're coming back to this city that for many of them, they, all they knew about it was what they had heard from their great-grandparents. For over 100 years, their families had been living in another country. And now they're finally coming home. And their hearts have been homesick. 
Have you ever been far away from the place that you really wish you were and had that longing to be there? Maybe it's those of you who are freshmen in college, you know, and you've gone to college for the first time, and man, you just want to go home and have some of your mom's food. You're longing to be there. Maybe, maybe it's some of you who, who, who you're required to travel for business, and you have one of those months where you just have to be gone more than you really want to be, and what you really want to do is just sleep in your own bed. Or maybe it's that time then you move to a new city and you don't know anyone and you're longing for the place that you came from. You feel homesick. And so the Israelites, they are a homesick people because they have been exiled to a place that is not their own and they are a homesick people that are coming home. But you know, they weren't just physically homesick, that it's possible to be spiritually homesick. You know, to be in a place where you have this longing to be in a better spiritual position than you are. It's like this longing. I know that closeness with God is possible, but it just seems to always be out of reach. I have a feeling there's probably some of us who are here this morning that are just feeling spiritually homesick. You're longing for more of God, but you're not sure what it would take in order to see that happen in your own life. And so we see the Israelites, they're gathered here, this people, they are a homesick people, both physically and spiritually. The second thing we see about them is that they are hungry. They're a hungry people. So I want you to imagine, it says every man and woman, and all who could understand, gather in this courtyard, and there's over, I mean, tens of thousands of people gathered in this room, and they say, hey, Ezra, we want you to bring out the book of the law of Moses. Now, what is that? The book of the law of Moses is simply this. If you were to look in your Bible at the first five books in your Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, this is the book that Ezra is bringing out. And these people are saying, Ezra, bring it to us, read it to us. Just imagine uh, uh, tens of thousands of people that are so hungry and eager that they're longing for someone to just stand up and read from Genesis to Deuteronomy. If you've ever read Leviticus, you know how hungry they really were that they wanted to hear him read it. They were hungry. And so Ezra brings the book out, and as he opens it, they stand. And as he talks, they praise, and they get on their knees. And then for six hours, they sit there and listen as he reads the Torah to them, the first five books of the Bible. And I love this picture because uh, Ezra is reading it, and it would have been in Hebrew, but for a lot of them, they now spoke Aramaic. And so you see the Levites, they're fanning out amongst the crowd, and they're wanting to make sure everyone understands what is being said. And so they're reading it, and they're teaching it, and they're interpreting it, and they're explaining it so that everyone can understand what is being read. Now, here's the thing. I think we have this tendency to, to look at people in the Bible and automatically assume, oh, man, six hours? Those people, those are like the spiritually elite. I mean, to have this willingness to sit and listen to the Bible be read for six hours, they made the Bible. They're in the Bible. Therefore, they must be spiritually more advanced than I am. But what I want you to see, this thing of them being hungry is so important because what brings you to the table is hunger, not fullness. These people, are, they're not, not sitting and listening to the word because they're spiritually strong. No, they're eager to listen to the word because they're spiritually starved. They're longing to hear more of who God is and who they are. It is their hunger that brings them to the table. And what happens when a homesick, hungry people encounter the word of God? And that's what I love about this story the most. Yet tens of thousands of Homesick, hungry people sitting, listening to the word. And you get to verse 8, and it says that they're all weeping as they hear it. 
There's like this mourning and this grieving and weeping that is going on. Now, what's happening here? Why, why are they weeping? You know, they're getting what they want. They're back home. They're sitting listening. I think there's a couple things going on. But first, we have to understand what it is that they're being read. So as Ezra is reading the first five books of the Bible, as these Levites are explaining it and teaching it, these people are hearing their story, some of them for the first time. They're hearing the story of, of, the, of, of Abraham and God's covenant with him. They're hearing the story of, of, of the Israelites being enslaved in Egypt and of the exodus of God bringing them out. They're hearing the story of God being physically with them in a pillar of cloud and fire in the wilderness. They're hearing the story of Moses going on the mountain and receiving this, this way of life that will allow these people to have intimate communion with God all the time. They're hearing the story, their story. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when, when a person hears their story, there's, there's something in them that awakens. They begin to be awakened to more of their identity, to who they are, who they really are. And I think our culture understands this pretty well. We understand that, man, when we understand our story, where we come from, then somehow we begin to have a clear understanding of who we are and where we are right now. I think this is why, you know, websites like Ancestry.com are, are so popular right now. And there's some folks in our church that are doing that. They're like, yeah, I'm finding about my, my ancestors, where I come from. I'm looking at my heritage because something just starts to click when you find out where you come from, right? I remember I had a, I had a friend uh, in college. He's a little bit older than I was. And um, he was adopted. But, you know, when he was adopted, uh, the kind of the normal practice of the time was what is called closed adoption. And a closed adoption is where, you know, the files are sealed and you have no idea who your birth family is, who your birth mother, your birth father, anything about them. In fact, I don't think my friend even found out that he was adopted until a little bit later in life. And so I need you to imagine that he used to tell me stories of as a teenager and in his early 20s, you know, he would drive down the road and he'd be, always wonder, where do I come from? Who's my family? He'd say, he'd see pictures of people's face on a billboard and he'd go, I wonder if that's my birth mom or if that's my birth dad. Where do I come from? And then I got to walk with him as he went through this journey of trying to find his birth family. He hired a private investigator and I remember he finally found where his birth mom was and he made this trip to the town where his birth mom lived and he got to sit down with her and he comes home and he tells me the story. He's just weeping as he tells me, Aaron, I got to hug my birth mom for the first time. He's like, Aaron, I have a brother. I didn't even know I had a brother. I got to meet my brother and talk with him and the whole experience was heart-wrenching and hard, but it was enlightening as he started seeing these dots connect and he was like, this is where I come from. This is part of who I am. I think this is what's happening with the Israelites here. They're hearing their story and they're weeping and they're like, this is who we are. You know, I take a look at what's happening in our church family right now and I think this is a lot of what is happening in our very midst. You know, week after week, we've had people come up and share the places where they're being awakened. I'm seeing men and women in our church being awakened to a newness of who they are and part of who they are seeing people that are sharing that you're telling me you're being awakened to the power of God in your life. You're being awakened to your sense to want to control things and how God wants to help take some of that control and lead you in grace. You're being awakened in the positions he's put you in. You're being awakened as fathers and as mothers and as brothers and as sisters. You're being awakened to all these things. I'm people sharing these stories. You're being awakened to the joy of the Lord that he has for you. You're being awakened to the idea that we are a kingdom people with a kingdom purpose. And I think this is happening because God is reminding us of our story. You know, we have a story as well. And it's not necessarily the same story that the Israelites were hearing, but no, our story begins at a cross. 
where we see that there is a God who loves the world so much that he's willing to step into the pain and the, and the horror of walking as a human and seeing all the suffering around. And he's not only willing to enter it, but he's willing to die for it. That you have a Lord who died on your behalf, and that is your story. But it doesn't stop with a cross. It moves on to an empty tomb. That We have a, story, we have a Lord. Part of our story is that he did not just die, but he conquered death. So the death no longer gets to reign over us and we don't have to live in fear of death because we know intimately the one who defeated death. And our story doesn't just stop there. There's a cross and there's an empty tomb. And then there's this, this beautiful picture of God wanting to know us so intimately that he literally comes and he puts his spirit in us. And this is what we read. It's called the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts where, where Jesus is risen from the dead and the Holy Spirit is poured out on the followers of Jesus. And this is our story. You know, I dare you to go read Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four. Read the last three paragraphs of each chapter and see if something doesn't stir within you. Because we're seeing these people who are reminded of their identity and they're given the spirit of God and suddenly they're, they're eating together in their homes, they're practicing hospitality, there's no needy people amongst them, there's no one that is hungry because they're taking care of one another, they're bending over backwards to meet one another's needs and take care of them. And when we read that, I believe that God begins to stir us because we go, oh, that's who we are. That's where we come from. That's our identity. That's what we were meant for. As we ask the question about what our culture needs, I look at the society around us, and I don't say this in a trite way, but I really do believe that what our culture needs is for the people of Jesus to be awakened to who we really are. Because when the people of God are awakened to our identity, we are first driven to our knees in prayer before the Almighty God. But when the people of God are awakened, we begin to move and, and the poor are provided for and the needy are cared for and racial division begins to melt and unity abounds. Because when the people of God are awakened to who we are, the naked are clothed, the hungry are fed, the lonely are placed in families, this is what happens when we get awakened as the people of Jesus. And God is stirring, I believe, in our church family and he is awakening our hearts not just so that we can enjoy a great worship service on a Sunday, because there is a culture around us that is sick and needs to be healed. And Jesus' answer for the world was the cross, the empty tomb, the pouring out of his spirit, and his people being full of his presence everywhere we go. Who wants that? Man, I want that. And I know you want it. God is awakening us. And so you see the Israelites are being awakened because they're hearing their story, but you know, there's something else going on on the flip side of the same coin. You know, have you ever noticed that sometimes when God begins to awaken you, you begin to be awakened to all the ways that you haven't been living into the things that you thought you were supposed to. And so the Israelites have been hearing the reading of the law, and so they're being awakened to their identity, but they're also going, oh, we've been missing it. Look how far off we are how far we've strayed from what God had for us. And there's this deep mourning that kind of comes over them as they begin to weep, weep at what they've missed out on. And here's the thing I want us to hear as a church family is that some of us are being awakened right now. And the enemy is going to come in and the first thing he's going to try to get us to feel is shame or guilt for all the ways that you've been missing it as a follower of Jesus or all the ways that you've been missing it as you've been living for yourself. 
And God will say, I'm awakening you to your identity. And we'll go, oh, but God, look how lazy I've been. No, I'm awakening you to your identity. Oh, but God, look, look how bad I've been. No, I'm awakening you to your identity. No, God, look how prideful I've been. Look how selfish I've been. And so they start weeping. Now, I love the way the leaders respond to them. We're going to get to that in a minute, but I want us to make sure we don't miss this because some of us in our church right now are experiencing deep conviction as the Spirit is stirring your heart. And you've got to be able to distinguish between conviction and shame because conviction comes from our good and gracious God, but shame comes from our enemy. You see, shame has this way of paralyzing us. You start to get convicted of the ways that God is wanting to move through your life and shame comes in and you go, yeah, but look where I've been and it paralyzes you in the past. You see, conviction propels you into the fullness of who you are and your identity. Let's not be a church that gets shackled with shame. Instead, let's be a church that embraces conviction and celebrates all that God is doing in us and all that he wants to do through us. And this is what we see happen in this story, right? Nehemiah and Ezra, they look out, all the people are weeping. They go, hey, no, 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 don't weep. Don't mourn. Like, oh, this is a great and holy day. The joy of the Lord will be your strength. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go find the best tasting food you can find and feast. And if you see people who are in need, invite them in, send some food to them, bring them in. We are going to celebrate all that God is doing. We are not going to mourn and get paralyzed by our past. We're going to celebrate what God is doing and fix our eyes on where he's leading us. It's such a powerful moment. And so that's what we see happen. It says that the people go and they just start celebrating and they spend a day just rejoicing and celebrating the activity of God in their midst. Now, I think sometimes we get awakened and we, we want God to give us the full picture of what he has for us. Like, God, I want to know everything. But what we see in this story, we're going to see it again next week. What we see is that God just goes, no, 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 just today. Today, celebrate. Today. If you read verse 13, it says, the next day they came back together and they're like, hey, what are we going to do now? And God's faithful and he led them. But today, he said, I want you to celebrate. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to celebrate and we're going to celebrate with a feast. You know, this is what our earliest, you know, family of Jesus followers did. They shared food. They broke bread with one another. And, and they would take the bread and they would take the cup. And it was a reminder of their story and their identity. It was a reminder of the body of Jesus that was given for them. It was a reminder of the blood of Jesus that was poured out for them. And they would break bread and they would celebrate. And we're going to do it a little bit differently this morning. And um, this is going to feel uncomfortable. I'm just going to tell you right now, but man, just embrace it. <laughs> we're going to celebrate what God is doing. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand. The band is going to come up here. And they're going to just lead us in a chorus of praise. Because, you know, the Israelites, when they used to approach the temple of God... They didn't always walk up solemnly and somber. Instead, they would dance and they would sing and they would play instruments as they approached the temple for worship. And so sometimes we come to the Lord's table and we come solemnly and it's okay and it's appropriate at times, but this morning we're going to celebrate because I think God is at work in our church family. And so the band's going to come up and they're going to lead us in a chorus of praise and in the middle of that, I'm going to send you to the table and you're going to get the cup and you're going to get the bread and bring it back to your seat with you. And we're all going to take it together. But here's what I want to tell you. As you walk to the table, don't stop singing. As you walk to the table, sing. As you pick up the bread, sing. As you pick up the cup, sing. As you walk back to your seat, sing. Let's celebrate together. If you want to dance, you can dance. 
People may laugh, it's all right. If you're standing next to someone and they're singing and it sounds terrible, you just sing terrible right along with them. We are gonna sing and celebrate and rejoice the work of the Lord because he is working in our family. So let's stand together. Let's stand together. I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna sing a chorus of this song. In the middle of it, I'm gonna send you and let's go rejoicing to the table. Bring it back to your seat with you. Father God, I praise you, Lord, because you are at work in our family. And Lord, it's not about us. It is about your great name and you being glorified. But Lord, because you love us, you work through us. So Lord, we celebrate because of your work in us. We celebrate because you know, we know that when you awaken your people, cultures change, cities change, nations change. So Lord, will you continue to awaken us? Lord, we celebrate before you as you awaken our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.